Hey guys, on this episode of Manufacturing Unscripted, I'm joined with my sister and producer of the show, Lauren Rawl. To kick off the new year, we wanted to highlight some of our favorite moments from the last year. So without further ado, please enjoy the show. This podcast is sponsored by Promus Incorporated, the leading provider of fully electric servo presses for manufacturing. Promus provides global support for pressing and motion control applications in multiple industries. With precise positioning and in-process force monitoring, your company will begin to see ROI on day one. Call 810-229-9334 or email sales at promisinc.com to speak with an expert engineer about your application today. Hey guys, welcome to Manufacturing Unscripted. I'm your host, Matt Rawl. Today I am joined uh, with the producer and my sister, Lauren. Hey Lauren, how you doing? Hi Matthew. Um, So it's a little bit of a change of pace this time. Um, We have a little bit of different kind of format for everybody. Um, But I'm going to treat you like every other guest I have. It's your first time on the show, um, and I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how your journey um, within manufacturing and how you got to where you are today. All right. Well, I got my start in manufacturing in a very strange way. I went to school for criminal justice, and I got my associates um, from Oakland Community College. Um, So I kind of bounced around in, like, security fields for a long time. I was a mall cop, which I know you and our siblings love to tease me about. Um, And then I was uh, security at a casino. I went into surveillance at a casino. And then once my daughter was starting school, I decided I needed more like of a nine to five situation. So you got me this job here at Promis. And um, throughout my time here, I worked my way up into the content and brand manager, which brought me to the podcast. Yeah, no, that's exactly how I remember it as well. I guess, um, I guess more about the podcast because you know that's kind of our biggest project we've worked <coughs> on together. Um, what is what is something that you've learned um, from producing a podcast? Because I know your background and it wasn't something you've done mm-hmm. before, so I imagine you've learned quite a bit. Well, as like a avid podcast listener, I'm always one with like an earbud in my ear listening to podcasts. So I already knew I loved them. Um, And it was just kind of a natural direction for us as far as our marketing department goes. We just, we were doing webinars and we were looking for other avenues. A lot of the magazine and publications um, produce podcasts and I was like, why don't we do our own? So I got together with you and our video guy and we decided to put one together. Um, I guess with learning how to do a podcast, I had to do a lot of research, just figuring it all out from from the go, you know. So um, I didn't realize how much work I would have to put into getting guests. Um, that's kind of a struggle even still. There are people that come to us that want to be on it, but just getting onto somebody's calendar can be tricky. So I just found like, you know, making a schedule and getting them on a call like as soon as possible is the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I I would second that in terms of just finding guests. Um, and it's, it's not so much finding them, it's just coordinating with everyone's schedules mm-hmm. because we, you know, we had someone, um, which I'll talk about later, uh, from the other side of the world joining us. And so that timing and all that stuff was pretty crucial. Um, but what about, what's one key takeaway that you've learned in regards to manufacturing from this podcast? 
I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that uh, there's just so many avenues in manufacturing that I didn't even consider. Um, from my position as a marketer, I see a lot of advertising, but also in manufacturing, there's not a ton. So when you consider like a consumer's good, the man like the marketing for that is completely different. So um, doing the podcast, I realized just like the you know the mental health on the on the manufacturing side is totally different. The the hours and the schedules of the people who work in manufacturing is totally different than like an everyday person. Mm-hmm. Um, so just taking those things into consideration, I feel like has totally made me a better marketer and more comfortable in my position now. Um, but yeah, I don't think I would have had the opportunity to meet all types of people if I wasn't for the podcast. No, that's good. That's a really good point. So, um, well, yeah. So thank you for that. Um, uh, and I, I think we can just kind of jump right into this. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm first up. And You're first up. Um, my, my first uh, favorite memory, um, and I think, uh, well, it's Tim Wilborn. And mm-hmm. what I liked about Tim so much is even the first time I met him, uh, he was just in his TW Control shirt. He had his sandals on walking through IMTS and just very down to earth. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, you know, convinced him to come on the show. And what we'll talk about um, in the clip, uh, a little bit about PLCs. And uh, in my time in manufacturing, PLCs have always kind of been um, kind of this exotic thing. Um, and I always thought it was based around the technology, but what Tim talks about is it's just more about the people. Yeah, I think I think what's really interesting about Tim too is when we very first started, you know, I saw him all over LinkedIn, just getting recognition here and there. And I reached out to him like really, really early on. But I think that the vision for the podcast wasn't totally clear yet for us. And we kind of had an idea of what we wanted, but we weren't exactly sure all the avenues that we would eventually go down. So um, at the beginning, I talked to Tim and he was like, I just don't know if I'm a good fit. Like I'm, I work on old technology and I think it's still really cool, but it's just not like new and flashy. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a bummer. Like you seem like a fun Mm -hmm. person to work with. Totally nice guy. Well, then we come back, you know, 30 episodes later and we've kind of altered how we felt about the podcast and changed up the vibe a tiny bit. And it was a right fit for him this time, you know. So I think that's what's also really nice about the podcast is that it can evolve, it can change, and it can be anything you want it to be. So having Tim on was really awesome for us. Yeah. So without further ado, here's the clip. And roughly, I can still work my way through it. And, you know, there's been a lot of things. And, you know, right now the big buzz is, you know, Industry 4.0. And, you know, I don't knock Industry 4.0. But I do believe there's a lot of people riding it, trying to use it just as a you know marketing term for some mm-hmm. product that I'll be honest will be here today and it'll be gone in six yes. months. Yeah. And so you you I've seen a lot of the years you know it was there was a huge push when I was first getting in the market, you know that PCs were going to replace PLCs and people even asked me then, well why are you learning PLCs? I'm like well I mean it seems to be what you know is out there. Yeah. And um. You know, and I've watched a lot of, you know, things come and go and a lot of brands pop up, come and go. But at its root, it is very similar. And I think that's why companies like them is really, even if you go back to, you know, Modicon or the PLC2 or whatever, it is similar all the way through to the control logics today. And that saves a lot of training costs, you know, and troubleshooting costs. 
Well, well, kind of building on that training, though, you know, something that I, I, I hear a lot is just like a, you know, a shortage of PLC programmers. Is that is that what you're seeing as well? You're shaking your head. So. Yeah, I mean, there there is a huge shortage, I'll say, of practical programmers. We can okay. get programmers. Yeah. I mean, we can hire programmers all day. That's not a big deal. But the issue is, I mean, and, and this is one you know, I say that I do that I, you know, I do training to make you become a better technician, but we yep. do get a lot of engineers in here and we get a lot of software engineers specifically really? okay. that, you know, are into, you know, some of, you know, the, the Python, the node red, yep. all that. And they're, but they realize they go out there and they, you know, they try to program and then they fall flat on their face in our industry. And they're like, okay, I get it. There's some practical aspect that I missed. And so, you know, getting, getting, them to connect that you know there's a physical wire out there somewhere mm -hmm. that is controlling something and yeah you have this program that can do a lot of cool stuff but when that wire comes loose somebody's going to be able to figure out where the problem is yeah and the yeah. person that does that that's who the company's going to say is a good program hey guys hope you enjoyed that clip of tim wilborn um our next up is going to be one of my favorite episodes with ali donnelly Matthew, I'm sure you remember talking to her, but this was back, um, this was our 15th episode. And having her on was pretty cool. She was really um, well-spoken for being so young. She um, was electrical apprentice, which I just thought was amazing because um, she has a really big social media presence as well. So I was just really taken by her. What was your first impression? Uh, it's always, you know, so super cool, you know, and super friendly. And um, I think it's part of just her being Canadian. But uh, something I always, as always, as a mechanical guy, always just you know catches me off guard is, is mechanical versus electrical. It's always kind of been a thing, but it's it's so funny how similar the process is in terms of, um, and what she kind of uh, talks about in that working with customers and even though you want to offer help and stuff, as long as you're positive and and trying to achieve a better goal it's always ends up um, working out in the end. Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, so in this clip that I, I pulled, um, she kind of discusses like people sending in their specs for a project. Mm -hmm. And then from like an electrical panel builder, like you have to kind of decide if this is gonna work or not, or if this is gonna fit, or if you need to kind of a different supplier or component. And I thought the way that she described it and handled it was pretty good. So I hope you guys enjoy this clip. Do you ever find yourself, you know, at this point, you you see kind of a customer's layout and you look like hey look that's just not going to work and you have you know you go back and say i recommend changing this or or are you, do you find yourself more of you know if they provide a drawing you, you do, this is what we make i i absolutely the first one yep. i find that um learning how someone's brain works through a schematic is not always easy <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So you'll have some people who will put exactly what wire gauge you yeah. need in the photo block, whereas other people, they won't even include that whatsoever yeah. in their drawing. So it's um, it's definitely a learning curve for sure, I'd say, um, to have to go through and decipher someone else's drawings. But it's never been a bad thing when you have had to put through recommendations like, hey, I think maybe you should move this device over. Hey, maybe we should offset these pieces of panduit a little bit mm -hmm. so we could actually fit the fans in these uh in, in the enclosure so yeah. i mean so far so good on that front um people have been pretty open about recommendations but definitely yes and I, and I, 
I'm sure as the deciphering ones are probably more exciting for you because I feel like if it's somewhat of a challenge for you, you're learning more and it's, it's, you know, you're, it just, it just further validates what you're doing when you come to a, a, a final resolution. Absolutely. Knowing like why you're going to put this yeah. there, and how it's going to work there and why it's better there than it is in the other corner. Absolutely. Um, so the, the follow-up question was, and you kind of touched on it. Um, now I've seen, you know, a bunch of panels now and, and I tend to see kind of the similar components. Do you find yourself like favoring some components, you know, um, you know, whether it be PLCs, power supplies, you know, are, you know, are you, do you use a variety or do you tend to kind of stick to what works and, and you found that that's usually what everyone else has been doing too? So it really depends. Like say it's something sent in from the customer and the customer is buying um, the products and providing them for us. Then we don't really have like say necessarily mm-hmm. on what we want in the panel. But if it was us, absolutely. Like we, um, I personally myself am a huge fan of Schneider and Phoenix. And yep. I think they not only look beautiful in a panel, but they work extremely efficiently. Like the, I know that competitive manufacturing costs are huge. So yeah. To work with like companies like that who also produce such high quality products, like yep. if it was my choice, I absolutely would go with that. But most of the time, it's um, products provided by the customer, which is pretty cool because then I get to see all the different um, distributors throughout Ontario. Yep. Like, I've met people from City Electric, I've met people from yep. Province Supply, I've met people from Automation Direct, like people that I didn't know um, existed three months ago and that have helped me every day in my career. So. So I hope you enjoyed that clip with Allie. Again, uh, very nice, and and I, I wish her the best of luck. Um, this next clip is mine. It's kind of probably my personal favorite. Uh, this was a big-ticket person for me, um, and that's Chris Lukey. Uh, he is someone that I have listened to all of his podcasts, um, and I, I really look to him as an inspiration for what this podcast could be, and even as a host. Um, and so it was, it was really good to talk to him, um, and, and listen to kind of how he came up with the idea to create his podcast, because listening to him, it was almost like the same conversation you and I had when we came up with the idea and it was just how to reach people, um, in a different way that we weren't doing, um, at the Mm -hmm. time. And, and we really were trying to target the younger audience because- We were trying to get the name, uh, well, just to be in front of them in in any capacity. Mm-hmm. And, and we really wanted to put manufacturing in the spotlight and show those people that uh, there's cool stuff going on. Yeah, and I, I mean, I still communicate with Chris. Um, it's just funny. He is kind of like a celebrity, you mm-hmm. know, when it comes to LinkedIn. And I think that's kind of funny because he's just so down to earth and he'll talk to anybody. Um, I recently reached out to him about something with the podcast and, you know, he's always giving me advice. And um, when I see him at shows, you know, it's a big hug and like a picture or whatever it is. But it's really nice the community we've been able to grow here with the podcast. I think that's definitely one of my favorite things. But this episode was definitely good. Yeah. And and on the community part. Right. So after we shot this podcast uh, with Chris, I mentioned I asked him, I was like, hey, do you have any feedback for me? Because I I just want to improve. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, do 10 episodes, then come back to me. Well, we're 40 plus episodes in. I haven't done that. So it's definitely something that I need to follow up yeah. on. 
um, because I know he's he's well he's now into the hundreds, mm-hmm. uh, well over the hundreds if you count the other podcasts yeah. he's done. Like I said, he's like a celebrity now in in like the industry. It's just really cool. It's really cool to see everybody's trajectory, like um, our growth plus their growth. I mean, we're all helping each other. Everybody's lifting each other up. It's just really nice to see. Yep. But without further ado, enjoy the clip. I'll talk to an area that I feel plays to my experience is that I'll give you a little backstory on how manufacturing happy hours started and how I think communicating in the way that let's say millennials and Gen Z communicate is a huge part about getting the next generation of talent in, right? I mentioned that I worked in sales for Rockwell Automation. That's where I've spent most of my career. And I split my time between two different markets, Houston, Texas, and San Francisco, California. You could probably envision a little bit about what those markets might be like, right? Houston, it's a lot of senior individuals that have been working at their companies for like 20, 30 years. You know, the relationship, the handshake is important. A lot of business is done through those face-to-face meetings. That's how I started my career. Mm -hmm. When I went to the Bay Area, it's almost the complete opposite, right? You've got people that are in their 20s and 30s that are making decisions at these companies. And they're probably not spending their whole career at one spot. They're probably jumping every two to three years. And realizing I needed a way to communicate with my customer base, that's where the idea of manufacturing happy hour came about, right? It's like, okay, maybe I'm not going to be able to get a 30-minute or a 60-minute in-person meeting with this individual, but surely I can create a video on relevant content to the things that Rockwell Automation helps manufacturers with, and they'll consume that on their own time if I sent it in an email newsletter Mm -hmm. or put it on YouTube. So really, I think when when it comes to recruiting the next generation into manufacturing, you got to, number one, communicate the way that they're communicating, right? You got to provide them information the way that they will consume it, whether that's video, whether that's podcast, whether it's some other digital form. Not to say that those face-to-face meetings still aren't important or that let's say a millennial like myself, I'll still do that all day long, but you got to reach people where they are. And for my customers at the time, that was, you know, behind the computer screen. I would say the other thing about that is it was a cool way to brand it, right? Like we all have this impression of manufacturing and, and this perception's changing, which is good. We talk about how it's like a stodgy, some people say dirty industry Mm -hmm. right off the bat. That's kind of what people think when they think of a factory. Fortunately, as the Venn diagram of tech and manufacturing continues to overlap, Mm -hmm. uh, that's positive branding that gets the next generation of manufacturing in as well. They see that manufacturing is this high-tech space, that they can use their knowledge to solve manufacturing problems instead of just software problems. So it's a combination of communicating with the next generation, the way they're comfortable communicating, and also putting that tech wrapper that tech branding around the manufacturing Mm -hmm. world hey guys uh hope you like that clip um really loved having chris on the podcast uh the last clip for this part is going to be one of my personal favorites with jeff mills from protech and john deary from promise these two guys got together and worked on a really cool application for injection molding it's something that um as a servo press provider we never really considered until this um, came along. So watching it all come together was pretty cool. And then these guys had a really good conversation about it and, and they kind of re- reinvented it a little bit. So um, yeah, I know you worked on it a little bit too, Matthew. Yeah, uh, this is kind of a, an interesting project for me because 
I came on so early, um, my role was completely different at the time. I was mechanical design engineer, um, and they they came to us asking us for a, a product or to to create something that can work in the injection mold industry. And it it sounds weird, but I'm actually super proud that we were actually able to repurpose a standard product and just insert it right into the application and it's worked seamlessly. Um, Because I think that's just a testament to the engineering um, that went into the product that it's very universal and can just go into another application. Yeah, and I thought it was just really cool how, you know, the, the end user supplier and the builder are all working together and promoting each other with, you know, one product. I know we did some trade shows with ProTech where we partnered with them. And um, I, I don't know, I just think the partnership's really cool and it's really nice to be able to work with another company just to succeed for the customer. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this clip. Maybe take a step back and talk a little bit about, you know, the the ProTech Promise injection mold uh, solution. And, and we kind of, I have some follow-up questions for that. Yeah, I, I guess to give you the history of it, we had a customer that uses uh, has a special injection process let's say they're they're actually assembling parts mm-hmm. and it's it's a safety issue so the parts have to be very consistent they have issues with short shots things like that and they'd always try to find different ways of investigating how you'd know whether or not you had a good good part they would go through use ultrasonic vibration testing things like that trying to mm-hmm. find ways of figuring out whether the parts are manufacturing are good how you double check it and it basically came back to just improving the injection process. So for years, most injection machines are all completely hydraulics. Every yep. motor, every cylinder is all hydraulic. And, you know, if you're just making widgets, you know, making door stops, things like that, yep. a hydraulic machine is fine. But when you get into very accurate processes, um, this customer is looking for a way of maybe going electric. They found a company to do that, but it was it's kind of a hybrid system, part hydraulic, part electric. It didn't really have any uh, feedback. It was kind of an open loop system, and they were still struggling trying to get repeatable numbers. So they they came to us, and, mm-hmm. and we came up with some different ideas. How could we make an injection machine smarter, have more more feedback? Yep. And that's when, you know, we reached out to ProMess. We'd been working with them for years. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've probably worked with ProMess for close to 25 years. Yep. Back when you used to build uh, broken tool yep. detection equipment, you know. Yep. So, and uh, basically that's kind of where the process started is they were looking for something with more feedback, maybe measuring the, well, I don't even think they knew what they needed, they wanted, right? Yeah. Yep. It's like they knew they needed more, but they didn't know what they needed. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what was available. And that's when Promus got involved and uh, then uh, started showing them like, you know, the remap basically, like what it could do yep. and how we could attach it. So it started there. They gave us an old piece of equipment and we were actually able to retrofit a standard remap unit yep. with a kind of a hodgepodge of hydraulic components and built a mold, a simple mold. Mm-hmm. And their goal was is try to to inject parts and weigh them and look for the accuracy. And I think John, you were, might have been involved in some of that. But 
I know it was very incredibly repeatable, way more repeatable than the hydraulic side of it. So it showed them that, hey, this is, we're going the right direction with yep. this equipment. So that's where it, it kind of started. Um, there were a number of companies that were claiming to have intelligent electric s- systems, but they really, they were just electric. Yep. Right? They just had motors. Sometimes they'd use current feedback, but, you know, the ProMess equipment was using actual load torque transducers, yep. load cells, things like that. So. Anything to add, John, on that? Uh, yeah, once we were able to prove that we could do injection yep. molding, uh, we were also able to show that we were um, like 50% more accurate on the weights uh, okay. than traditional hydraulic equipment could have been. Yep. No, that's that's good. I mean, it's you, you get, and you kind of made a good point of, you know, a lot of times people don't really know what they want until you kind of just show them everything and say, look, you know, we can do this or we can do that. And I think it definitely helps, especially when you're talking about you know safety, right? And you can never have enough data, right? And and be able to kind of back that up, you know, with actual consistent data that would allow you to f- find outliers or find something that you know find pick up on key things that change from one process to the next. Um, I I just don't you know you just don't have with traditional technology uh-huh. right um so i guess in that sense you know what what are some aspects of building that solution did you find the most challenging well i i, I don't know that it was challenging it, it's kind of challenging to build a full hydraulic machine now in yeah. this day hydraulics are kind of dying uh, mm-hmm. finding components is very difficult dealing with heat issues, um, mm-hmm. tank sizes, things like that. It, it actually was kind of a, a, a simple process. I guess on the mechanical side of it, integrating mm-hmm. it and designing it in really didn't take yep. much time. The controls part of it is pretty easy because we're already familiar with uh, integrating yep. you know, ProMess equipment yep. into standard machines. You know, Our machines will ha- do have PLCs. I think... The, the tricky part was how much information do you need? Yeah. You know, like how do we keep this thing affordable without going too crazy? Yep. And uh, I think that's the, the difficult part, I think, was on John's side of it, the programming side of it. You know, there's a lot of code going on, a lot of a lot of uh, secret sauce back there and uh, in the program that um, took some time. So you, you might not know off the top of your head, but how many – lines of code do you think you have? Um, altogether, probably in the neighborhood of two or 300. Um, a lot of it's repetitive yep. for that program, depending on how many uh, how oh. many speeds and for in tra- each shot. For a traditional program, though, how many do you think you have? Like uh, for, from your experience? A generic press fit yeah. program? Uh, maybe 30 to 50, depending on how okay, intricate so almost it is. 10 times more yeah, lines. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. The other tough part was this piece of equipment would eventually need to go into a, a, a like a production f- facility. Yeah. You know, you'd have operators that need to be able to make tweaks and adjustments to it easily. So we had an HMI that literally everything could be changed through that mm-hmm. HMI tied in the ProMess. So I know that that couldn't have been easy code wise, <laughs> you know, tying all that in, like you could have literally just wrote a program and just said start and it would have done everything, but we couldn't 
you know, we couldn't do that. We have to allow them to be able to change like purge times, yep. uh, you know, dwells. There's all kinds of stuff in there that they want just in case, yep. you know, yeah. and it makes the machine flexible. If they ever run different parts on it, then they have that ability to switch programs through that HMI. They don't want to have to do that through a computer. So that there's a lot to that also. And, and even then, I don't, I think we could have went even further if we really wanted to. Um, you know, I, I don't, I think we had like probably 20 HMI screens, you know, with <laughs> all the different settings, all the information, yeah. you know, things like that. Yeah. So um, that was, that was tricky. From, from the mechanical side, what about like how involved are you guys in the actual creation of the mold? You know what? We usually don't get involved in the mold yep. side of it. You know, usually if, if a company is coming to you, they have some expertise mm-hmm. in that already. They have their own people. Yep. They have the mold. And that's, in this case, the customers, they had the molds. So yep. here's our mold. We want you to integrate it into a standard piece of equipment. And that that's more of our expertise, yep. the mold side of it. We let them handle that. Yeah, because uh, I, just, I just think about it because then it becomes, you know, surface finish, all those things. And it just becomes... That in itself is an entire different animal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, there are people who do that, and they're it, good at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I, a friend of mine, you know, he's all about, you know, going and, and touching up, you know, molds and, like, putting certain etching on it so that it looks one way in one direction and another. Mm-hmm. It's just it, it's just a lot of work, and it's, yeah. it's more of an art than, than anything else. Yes, it is. Well, I hope you enjoyed that clip with Jeff and John Derry. Uh, This concludes part one of our two-part Best of series. Uh, Please subscribe so that you will get notified for part two automatically. Uh, We do have a big announcement in episode two. Uh, So uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Until next time. This podcast was brought to you by Promis Incorporated, hosted by Matthew Rawl, produced by myself, Lauren Rawl, mixed and edited by Ben Parsons. Please make sure to subscribe and rate this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at podcast at promisinc.com.